0: Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 528th episode of The Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg. And for those of you tuning in, this episode is being recorded at Chapman University, where I'm a trustee professor in front of an audience of film students. My guest today is a 39-year-old actress, producer, director, and activist who has been a public figure and a trailblazer for more than 20 years. She is best known for her work on the TV series Ugly Betty, which aired on ABC from 2006 through 2010, during which she was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, and for which she became the first Latina ever to win the Best Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy, and also for Superstore, which aired on NBC from 2015 through 2021. As well as for films ranging from the 2002 indie Real Women Have Curves to the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants films of 2005 and 2006, to the animated How to Train Your Dragon trilogy spanning 2010 through 2019. Now, for her scene-stealing turn in Greta Gerwig's critically acclaimed mega-blockbuster 2023 film Barbie, she is nominated for the Best Supporting Actress Academy Award. Would you please join me in welcoming to Awards Chatter and to Chapman, Ms. America Ferrera. <laughs>
2: Hello, everyone.
0: Thank you very much for uh, coming to Chapman and doing this, America. Really appreciate it. I can't
2: believe everyone's awake. I'm so tired. (laughs) I want to be in bed. But do you have school in the morning? What's... Okay. Oh, gosh.
0: Well, to begin with, just the the real basics, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
2: I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. (laughs) i was i was actually born at the usc hospital okay okay um sorry i don't i don't know what to say um and i was raised out in the san fernando valley in woodland hills and canoga park hey 818 yeah okay we still do that i don't know um and i was re- oh and i uh, so that was the question and yeah, what did folks. my parents do yeah Um, Well, my parents were both, are both immigrants from Honduras. Um, (laughs) Yes. And um, my, growing up, my mother, uh, mainly she, she worked as a executive director of a housekeeping department at the Canoga Park Hilton. And she did that for the majority of my childhood and actually for all of my childhood. And, um, and my parents split up and my father went back to Honduras.
0: Right. So, I guess forgive this if you've probably had to answer this uh, your whole life. But the name America—where <laughs> does why why did that why was that the name you were given?
2: Well, I'm actually named after my mother, America, and um, my and and so in Latin America, in South America, Central America, the name America is actually quite common or more common, I guess. And my mother's father was a librarian. And he, someone was excited about that. Yeah? Are you going to be a librarian? Your mom was a librarian. They know all kinds of things other people don't know. And, and he knew like this very little known holiday that they celebrated called Dia de las Americas. And my mom was born on Dia de las Americas. And that's why he called her America. And then I was named after my mom.
0: Got it. Now, you apparently knew at an early, early, early age what you wanted to do with your life, not even, you know, some kids are, you know, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be, you had a pretty specific dual answer. How, (laughs) what was it? And how did you know at that, at, at the age of five?
2: I, yeah, I was five years old when I uh, went to go watch my oldest sister. I'm the youngest of six kids, by the way. And we're six of us born in six and a half years. So we were like, boom, 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 boom. Insane. Yeah. Um, and my oldest sister was in fifth grade and she had to do the fifth grade play, very begrudgingly played Flying Monkey number three in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and of course, I this was my first time watching a live play. I was still in kindergarten. I was five years old. And I'll never forget sitting in the audience and watching my sister and other kids perform on the stage. And I was just seething with rage that <laughs> nobody had asked me to be a flying monkey in <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. And, and I, what I felt was just like jealousy, like I want to be on that stage. And, you know, it was like the first time I realized like that, 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 that's what I want to do. And yeah, yeah, I was five years old. And also I must have just learned about Martin Luther King Jr. because I said out loud to my mom, I want to be an actor and I want to be a human rights lawyer. And, um, and I'm not a human rights lawyer, <laughs> but I have continued my, um, my passion for social justice and my passion for being engaged in the world. And, and those were kind two things that I, I, kind of knew very early on that drove me and they continued to and they continue to. It's
0: amazing. So pretty soon after that, if I have it correct, you start acting in school plays. Then at 11, something called the California youth theater where you're taking the bus into Hollywood. And then I guess in high school, it, it, you know, started to recognize it as a craft. Is that all kind of correct?
2: Yeah. Like, like I said, I was a public school kid. So you know, I had no, I mean, I really, I, I had no idea how to get into the thing I wanted to be other than to take every single opportunity. And so I just did drama in school. I went and auditioned to the community theater. Um, in And uh, I don't know if any—if anyone here is, knows what DTASC is, Drama Teachers Association of Southern California. So big part of my childhood was was competing in the D task festivals the fall festival and the shakespeare festival and and you would win you know we would cut, students would cut down othello into a 10 minute play and and all the roles would be played by girls and we would direct them and it just it was not quality theater but <laughs> but it was an incredible experience and you know the, we i did direct that a four person version of Othello that won first place at the festival, <laughs> um, <laughs> which by the way, winning first place at the festival in middle school felt like winning an Academy award. <laughs> like this is the best thing that could ever happen to me. And, um, and that when you won first place, you got to then perform at the California youth theater or something. Yeah. And so then I learned about this thing called the California youth theater. And there was a summer program in Okay, this is like a story that might make me cry, but maybe not. Um, There was this program in the summer that was all the way out in Hollywood. And I lived all the way in the valley. And it took three buses for three hours for me to get there and to get back. And I was probably 13, I would say. And for this whole summer, I took the buses there and I took the buses back and they dropped me right off at, um, um, I want to say, Santa Monica and Van Ness, where there was this Little Caesars pizza place. And we would rehearse at this elementary school there. Um, And I I just never forget that summer, three hours each way on the bus to, you know, pay to be in a play Um, just because that was the way that I could do it. I didn't know I wanted to act in the summer. And that was the only opportunity I had. And then on my um, first day shooting on Ugly Betty in Los Angeles, um, I... I was driving to um, our lot, which was on Van Ness, and I drove, I got stopped at a light and I was right at the corner of Van Ness and Santa Monica. And I then like saw my bus stop in front of the Little Caesars that I would get out at and then sit and wait at as a 13 year old kid, like shuttling back and forth, dreaming that like one day someone would let me do what I love to do. And that was like such an insane full circle moment for me. That's awesome.
0: That's awesome. Well, now, yeah. In between those events, so California Youth Theater, about 11, Ugly Betty, 16, 17, there was your first audition experience. How did that come about? And what do you remember about your first you know, going out for a professional role for the first time?
2: Yeah, I, um, so I got lucky when I was in high school, we had people would come and talk to us because we weren't so far away from Hollywood. So our drama teacher would try to have people who had careers in the industry come and talk to us because we're all so privileged and lucky to be in, you know, schools where we have that access. And there was a a, a woman who was giving sort of commercial workshop classes in Studio City. And she came and spoke to our class and said, you know, you could take this workshop and learn how to audition for commercials. And there's an, and there's an agency showcase and, and you might get an agent at the end of it. And, you know, it's LA, so there's like a million things designed to like take your money and never really translate into anything. But I was going to do it. I was waitressing in the mornings on the weekend and I was going to take my hard-earned cash and I was going to do this um, commercial workshop, potential showcase thing. And lo and behold, I did it and I got an agent, the Bobby Ball Agency on and, and And so I was 16 when I started auditioning and every audition was such a trial because it was how was I going to get there who was going to take me you know what was I going to wear and you know how was I going to look presentable and I didn't know what I was doing um and everyone in my life was like you're insane like this is not ever going to be a thing like stop my siblings were mad if they had to drive me and you know it was just every time I had to go on an audition it was a racket and and so I auditioned kind of for a year and never got anything. And then... Um, Can I just
0: stop you for one yeah. second? So you've talked about the first audition.
2: My first audition. Okay, yes. My first audition, I was 16 years old. What I remember is that it was for like a late night cable commercial it was sort of like a bail bonds commercial. It was like I was a little girl who was like, "Daddy, come home" or something like that. <laughs> it was like and I looked really young. I was like chubby and I like I looked I was 16 but I looked 13 and um and I remember I wore braids and I wore overalls and I was so cute. And <laughs> I walked into my first professional audition and I did it. "Daddy, come home" or whatever. And I remember the lady the casting director saying to me um that was great um can can you can you do it again but just this time sound more Latina and I was like see that's the real reaction I was just like um what do you mean like I had no idea what she was talking about I was like do you mean you want me to do it in Spanish and she's like no 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 do it in English just sound more Latina and I remember being like but I am Latina So isn't this what a Latina sounds like? And I was just, I just couldn't even pick up what she was putting down, right? And I walked out so confused. And I remember, you know, getting in the car and explaining to my mom and my brother, like, what had happened. And they're like, they wanted you to, like, speak in broken English. Like, they wanted you to, like, you know, sound more ghettoized or whatever. And I just didn't even get it. Um, And so that was my first experience at an audition. And, you know, I had not really even thought about myself like in the box of a Latina. I, more than anything before that, I had thought of myself as like American and it's the American dream and I'm that first and foremost. And we live in this land where anything's possible for anyone. And it was like right from the get-go of my first audition, I realized like that I was going to be seen as something very specific and particular that wasn't going to be all of who I was and all that I had to offer. And that continued, you know, that continued throughout my career.
0: Now, the thing that, you we were I was just talking to you backstage about that so impressed me and I think should so impress you guys as people who are taking a full load of you know classes right now at a, at a college um you got a scholarship to go off to USC while you're doing that is when you were starting to also continue to audition and get the two big roles that started your career when you were 17 so I imagine right as you're starting college you're This is when we're talking about this Disney Channel TV movie. Got to kick it up. Got to kick
2: it up. Yeah. (laughs) Si se puede. Yes. This is the audience for got to kick it up. They grew up with it. Oh yeah.
0: Now this got to
2: kick. So that was my junior year of high school. So I that was even earlier. Got to kick it up. My first job ever. April twenty third, two thousand and one. Wow. I just turned seventeen years old, um, and and got to kick it up was my first job ever. I was 17. And then, and then I had a summer. And then in the summer, I booked Real Women Have Curves. So my, (laughs) so my first semester of my senior year of high school, I was filming Real Women Have Curves.
0: And okay, so let's break those. Let's talk about, break down each of those first. Um, So got to kick it up. Disney Channel movie, you're playing...
2: I was certain I would get an Academy Award yeah, nomination. Sure.
0: Yeah. Hey, you know, last few years, Austin Butler, these guys are getting a lot of nominations I, for...
2: No, I thought that I would be nominated for being Yolanda in God Right, Right,
0: right, up.
2: right. I, I'm like, this will get me the nomination, right?
0: But I, I mean, in all seriousness, though, at, when you got that part... That's a huge oh, deal, no, right? Oh, it was
2: life. I mean, it changed my entire life. I mean, let's be clear, nobody in my life thought this was possible for me. But me. Like I knew what I wanted and what I had been kind of told by everyone around me, friends, family, most of my teachers, enemies was just like
1: <laughs>
2: like what are you what are you smoking? Like like look at you. You know, or, or and sometimes it was out of love. It was like the odds are slim, you know, and they weren't wrong. You know, it, it wasn't always out of malice or not wanting to believe in me. Sometimes it was just wanting to protect me and wanting me to live in reality and sort of realize that all things considered, there wasn't really room for somebody like me in the industry.
0: Which prior to you, there wasn't a lot of evidence that there was. I mean, right. who are the people that you... Look to from the, you know, who were Latino, Latina, who were in pop culture that you were aware of growing up?
2: Tom Hanks. I wanted to be Tommy. Oh, okay that's who I wanted to be <laughs> and you're but and, you know to your point I didn't have those role models certainly you didn't look like me there were some Latina superstars in like Selma Hayek or Jennifer Lopez but that also was not me I was a five foot one you know, short, brown, at 17, very overweight, I was very poor, I was, you know, not connected. Like, I, there there was no one like me that I could look to and say, that's the path, that's the way. I mean, of course, I was inspired watching Halle Berry win her Academy Award and feeling like, see, things can change, and maybe one day, you know... I, I found inspiration in all kinds of people, but I couldn't find people who looked like me, who had paved the path that made sense for getting me to to where I wanted to go from where I was.
0: And that was really the significance in a way of Real Women Have Curves, right? I mean, this is adapted by Josefina Lopez from her own play about Mexican-American girls accepted to Columbia University, but her own mother is opposed to her going there wants her to go work in the family factory sweatshop and it called for not salma Hayek or whatever but a, a essentially an average young Latina girl right and so how did you first hear about it and how did that go about in terms of landing that part?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I had just done my Oscar-worthy performance as Yolanda and Gotta Kick It Up. (laughs) And so I was feeling pretty good about myself. Um, And with with the money I made on Gotta Kick It Up, the first thing I wanted to do with that money was to pay to go to drama camp. All I ever wanted to do my whole life was go to drama camp. That was for rich kids. I was not (laughs) a rich kid, but now I had money. And I had applied to this um, program at Northwestern University called the Cherubs Program. Anyone know it? Somebody. Yes. There's always a cherub in the room. They have a film program too. They have a film program and acting program. And I had applied to it, but I didn't get the scholarship. So I had to give up my spot because I couldn't pay. But then I got, got to kick it up and I got money. And so I called them back and I said, I have money. Is there a spot for me? And they're like, you have money? Yes, there's a spot for you. And, and so so I went away to do my acting program and I wore my Disney channel, got to kick it up, denim jacket, crew jacket every day. And I wanted everyone to know that I, that I was about to be a movie star. And, um, and I was there having a horrible time being very lonely and homesick because I was like, I don't know how to be here. And, and, um, I got a call from my manager, who was the woman who came to my drama class. Her name is Deborah Lynn Finden. And she said, HBO is casting for a movie called Real Women Have Curves. They want to see you. You have to come back. And I said, I'm at drama camp. (laughs) I'm not missing drama camp and she's like no 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 but it's hbo and it's a movie and they really think and i was like yeah no (laughs) and she was like uh okay and then she called me back she's like if i send you a video camera, will you, camcorder, do you guys even know what that is? (laughs) If I send you a camcorder, will you put yourself on tape? And I was like, yeah, cool. So I, my friend Frankie, Frankie, um, amazing girl from New York, we sat down cross-legged with three books and she stuck it on there and she played my mom. She played my boyfriend. She played all the parts. And I walked across campus and stuck it in the FedEx and shipped it off. And then she called me. She said, cool. They saw your tape. They want you to come back to audition. And I was like, I have four weeks left of drama camp. And she's like, they will cast someone else. I said, fine, I have drama camp. And I'm not leaving because I paid for it and because this has been my lifelong dream. And and so she's like, oh my God, like what am I going to do with this girl? And so I said, look, if they don't find someone, I'll come in when I'm back. And so I finished drama camp, which side note, Kate McKinnon was at that drama camp. (laughs) I know... at luckylandslots.com
3: available to players in the US excluding Washington and Michigan no purchase necessary vgw group void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
4: lucky
1: land casino asking people what's the
4: weirdest place you've gotten lucky
1: lucky in line at the deli i guess Aha, in my dentist's office
2: but she went by a different last name than, um, Kate, something else. And she was like, you know, she was just the girl at the camp who was the funniest person you ever knew. And anyway, she's in Barbie too. Yay. Um, so go cherubs. So I finished drama camp and, and she was like, she was like, they, they haven't found their girl. They still want to see you. I'm like, cool. I'm done with drama camp. I'll come in now. I had so much confidence then I wish I had some of that confidence still. And so I went in and they, uh, I auditioned five times. They brought me in. I read with Lupe Ontiveros, Rest in Peace. I auditioned with uh, Ingrid Oliu, who played my sister. I auditioned with five different boys who were auditioning for Jimmy. It's a horrible audition process. They put like five girls for Anna and five girls for Jimmy in a room. And then they would come out and they'd be like, okay, um, Jennifer and Michael. And then they'd. You know, and then they like, okay, now we want to see Michael with, you know, uh, Lisa or whatever. I'm bad at thinking up (laughs) names. And it was terrible. And I went out there five different times and then I booked it. And my first day of rehearsal was my first day of my senior year of high school, which also happened to be September 11th, 2001. (sighs) My first day of my senior year.
0: Yeah. Once life went on after 9-11 and you're working on this, did you realize... I mean, yeah, it's HBO. Yes, you're the lead. Yes, you're working opposite this actress playing your mother, Lupita Antavaros, who was, you know, uh, just a, a had been around forever, had played in, in years where there were not. There was a, a even lower ceiling of what sh- opportunities she could have, but she was great. You know, just sort of how early on in the process did it register that this could really be something?
2: I mean... I I think I had the outlook that every single door was going to be the door that got me there, you know, like this is going to be the one, you know, but and it didn't even matter to me. Like I, all I wanted to do was was an opportunity to to act, to do my work, to do what I loved. And so getting the part in and of itself, I had no idea that there was anything that could happen after that. All I thought was like, I get to do the thing. I get to act. I get to do the part. And and so I didn't think about any of that. And, you know, we finished shooting it November 2001. And at the end of December, I got a phone call. And it was made for HBO, the channel, which was weird because I'd go to my teachers and be like, I'm doing an HBO movie called Real Women Have Curves. <laughs> and if you were alive in the 90s, you'd know that, HBO movies called Real Women Have Curves were very late night movies that were not PG-13. And I think my teachers were like, you're what? Like, what are you doing? And it was made for HBO, the channel. And actually, Real Women Have Curves ended up being HBO's first feature film Uh, uh, release as HBO Films because that's how well received it was at festivals and in the world. And so in December, Maude Nadler called me and she's like, we're going to Sundance. And I was like, cool, what's Sundance? (laughs) I had no idea. Like, if you're following the timeline, it has not been a year since I booked my first job as an actress. I got got Gotta Kick It Up. I got Real Women Have Curves. And less than a year later, we're premiering at the Sundance Film Festival.
0: Where... It was so well-received and, in fact, wins the Audience Award for dramatic films, special jury prize for ensemble cast. There's one scene that people in Park City went nuts for. Still, anybody who watches the movie and they've had revival screenings go particularly nuts for, you know, which scene I'm referring well,
2: to. Is it the flaunt scene or is it the taking the clothes off scene?
0: Well, I mean, the the taking the clothes off, but let's just think for anyone who hasn't seen it, that sounds... With
2: well, the dancing in our underwear in the... <laughs> well,
0: just taking a stand against yeah, yeah, this yeah. idea that, yeah. you know, uh, somebody should be ashamed of their body or whatever. Yeah. And all the, everybody in the factory does it. So anyway, though, your Sundance experience, between that and the release of the film, which was went out to theaters in, I think, October, between that, you apparently had some second thoughts about whether or not you wanted to even continue acting. I mean, le- I was around the same age and 9-11 threw a lot of people for yeah. a loop and apparently that was the case with you, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I like I was saying, I was a senior in high school and I had done all my applying to colleges and I had thought that I was going to, I'd always thought that I was going to go to school for acting. A couple things happened. First, I did the Cherub's program. Um, no shade on the Cherub's program. But I realized then what I knew when I was five, which is like, this isn't the only thing I love. And this conservatory program is awesome and and I can do it for six weeks, but I really feel like my whole self doesn't quite feel, um, expressed and seen and stimulated if I'm just doing acting. I need to be able to study something else. So I had applied to most schools as a double major acting and in international relations. And and yes, is someone else a double major? Yes. <laughs> um yes. And 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 then on the heels of 9/11, again, like LAUSD public school kid could barely point to Afghanistan on a map, meanwhile I was like 4.0 GPA. And I was very shocked at how little I knew about the world. And I wanted to know more about the world. And so I made the decision to not study acting at USC um, um, and instead just do international relations, but continue my career as an actress in the world. However, very quickly, you know, I became like the freshman kid in the front row crying like in every class because I was all of a sudden learning about things like genocides and plastics companies and climate change and I was like the world is so effed up like (laughs) and I literally I went through a whole crisis of like it's not enough for me to just be an actress like I can't just go do what I love and pursue my passion that's so selfish in a world that is so hurting and needs so much fixing. So, so I had spent like a month, a, a semester kind of agonizing. And then finally I decided like, I just have to stop acting. I just have to focus on, on this and, you know, get a fancy degree and become something fancy and try to make the world better. And so I went to one of my beloved teachers or not, I mean, I didn't even know if he knew me. My teacher, in whose class I cried in all the time, and I went to his office hours, and he was this like older white guy who'd like quit his corporate job to change young people's lives. So I was like, he's gonna love this, and <laughs> and I was I told him what I, my epiphany of like I have to I have to quit and I have to do something better, and and then he like stopped me and said, told me that he had a young men, high school mentee who he'd been mentoring for a couple years about, you know, college mentoring, getting her into college. And that she never really trusted him and he could never really get through to her. And that one day she came to him and she said, Dr. Andrews, if you really want to know what my life is like, if you really want to know what I'm up against, then come watch this movie with me. It's called Real Women Have Curves. I I know. <laughs> And so I was like sobbing, of course. And and he told me that he went with her, he took her and five of her friends to see Real Women Have Curves and took them to a diner and they talked and laughed and cried about how they had never seen their lives before on a big screen and how much it resembled their lives. And then he bought the DVD, went to his mentee's parents and said, will you watch this movie? Can we have a conversation after you've watched this movie? And that ultimately they did and and finally and ultimately her parents came around and supported her dream to go to college based on this conversation and thank you and uh, you know what I what I took from that and what the gift that Dr. Andrus gave me was was the was the knowledge that that's that the stories we tell matter and that the stories we tell shape our world. And that they shape what we believe about ourselves. And that in that moment, I realized that my passion and my talents for performance and storytelling and filmmaking could be could be a tool, just as well as they could be a weapon. They could be a tool for telling stories that shape a world that I want to see, that I want to live in. And And so it felt like, Permission. It was permission to, to, to keep embracing and being all of the things that I am, and not giving into this idea that we have to reduce ourselves to a job title or to a career path or to a major or to, or a major and a minor. It's like we are people, and the things we have to contribute to the world uniquely are at the intersection of all of the things we are and all of the things we love. And so staying in international relations and continuing to pursue my love of of acting and storytelling, you know, it was a constant struggle. It was really hard and and it didn't always make sense to me even, but it led me to my path and it has been for me the most, you know, rewarding It's what I'm the most proud of. I'm the most proud of being loyal to all of the things that I am and not succumbing to the cultural pressure to like pick a lane and pick, pick an identity that doesn't really honor my whole self.
0: Absolutely. And we'll talk about some of the ways, yeah. Where you've, I think your, your international relations background and interest in World events and all of that comes back in, in a little bit. But first, I would be remiss to not note that Part A, Real Women Have Curves, became the first Latina-directed film ever to make it into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, where <laughs> films are preserved forever. Um, some people, including Josefina Lopez, believe it may have been a inspiration for Lady Bird, which I think could be. Uh, we'll have to ask Greta next time you see her. And it definitely you know, help to open the door more. Now, you followed that in back-to-back years with Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants too. This is Carmen Lowell, one of the four girls at the center of this. Deborah Martin-Chase, a producer of this, said that you were the first to be cast, and it actually was not because of Real Women Have Curves. I don't know that she'd even seen it. She said she saw you in a local theater production somewhere in Hollywood. Do you, do you remember that?
2: Yes. Oh my gosh. So right after the Sundance film festival and the movie winning, and then Lupe and I getting a special jury prize for acting, like I, you know, again, I was like Academy Awards, here I come. <laughs> and, and, um, and then I could not book a, pilot to save my life. And I lost out on this pilot that I really, 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 really wanted. And I was devastated. And I'm like, well, that's it for me then, I guess I'll never work again. (laughs) And, and, and I was, um, in a, in a production of Little Shop of Horrors at my high school and, and... And then I made everyone very angry when I left and uh, to to do this play called The Have Littles at the Lee Strasberg Theater in Hollywood. Um, And that's another reason why I chose not to study theater in college. While I pursued my acting career, because you don't make any friends by dropping out of productions <laughs> because you got a job like Great. no one appreciates that. Um, but I did do it a couple times in high school. I apologize to the 2002 class drama <laughs> class of El Camino Real High School drama. Um, but I did the Have Littles. And, you know, I grew up in theater. I mean, not theater trained, but that's all I knew. That's all I did. I had been doing theater. Since I was, you know, in third grade, my first production was Romeo and Juliet. I played the apothecary and I um, <laughs> had no, I, yeah, right? And, and, I, and it was a junior high production and I was in third grade and I forced my sisters to take me to rehearsal and then I snuck in the back and I got on stage and auditioned and I got a better part than them, so there. <laughs> um, but yes, theater was, theater felt like, Everything that I knew, that was more familiar to me than acting on camera. So going back to doing theater after Real Women Have Curves felt so natural to me.
0: But that's just kind of crazy that you were first sister of the Traveling Pants, essentially, like you were discovered twice in totally different ways. Like that, how many people, you know, one time is crazy that, you know, somebody gives you a, a chance here. They She saw you on totally different thing. And that was another big, big Part of your life there. And then also starting in 2006, the same year as Sister of the Traveling Pants, part two, was Ugly Betty. And so just to set it up, and obviously stop me if any of this is wrong, but the idea here was let's adapt this very popular Colombian telenovela, Yo Soy Betty La Fea.
2: Betty La Fea. Yo Soy okay. Betty La Fea was the Mexican version. Who knows? Yes. Betty Lafea yeah. was the original Lafea, Colombian okay. version. Yeah.
0: And the idea, let's make it an hour long show, which is traditionally not comedy. That's dramas are hour long, but this was going to be, and I guess there was always, it, nav, it it walked the line between drama and comedy always, but mm-hmm. here. Um, Can
2: I ask a question? Yeah. How many people in this room just started watching Ugly Betty on Netflix, like, disco- or rather discovered Ugly Betty on Netflix. Like, that's yeah. so, um, like, I think some of these people weren't even alive yeah, no. when we actually made Ugly Betty. It's
0: possible, yeah. It's
2: incredible that it's, like, a now out life. on Netflix and having, like, a whole new wave of people discovering it. Totally. amazing.
0: Well, the the roots of it the first time around were that um, we've got Ben Silverman, previously had made another overseas show that got rebooted here, essentially the office, uh, you have Salma Hayek, right. Who comes on, started in telenovelas, I believe, and Silvio Horta. Um, so basically all of this is to, to Americanize or to, you know, bring it to American TV. Um, how did you, was this somebody again calling you up or was this just sort of, uh, you know, an agent saying we've heard about this or what?
2: Well, I did have to audition, but the first I'd heard about it, um, I had never met Selma Hayek, and I happened to be at this hotel on a bad date <laughs> <It's> <laughs> before I met my husband, um, and and Selma Hayek runs up to me. And she said, You are my ugly betty. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? And and she like says to me, we're doing this show. And it's based on this thing. And you're her. And I was like, I don't know what's happening, but yes, whatever Selma Hayek is asking me to do, the answer is yes. And um, and and then I, I like thing I called my agent. I was like, I don't know what happened. And they're like, Oh yeah, they were talking to them about this pilot and they still made me audition for it. I was speaking of theater. I was in New York doing an, my first off Broadway, New York production called Dog Sees God. I don't know if that's a play. Um, maybe the theater kids know. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> and I was on that off Broadway, uh, play when I got called for, to audition for Ugly Betty. And, you know, I just had this feeling of like, yeah, this is, this is me. Like, this is me. I I know this. I can be her. And I.
0: How did they describe her? Because I could see that being both a, a compliment and being like, wait, what?
2: Well, I watched the Colombian version and I knew that the Colombian version was, I mean, massive in Colombia. Like, like there were not cars on the street when Ugly Betty, like, air episodes of, of Betty La Fea aired in Colombia. So it was so big and so beloved. And it was in this way, it was a inside Cinderella story of, like, there's this fish out of water and she, you know, is like heart of gold and she's in this very, you know, dog-eat-dog, uh, industry and like that her heart of gold sort of transforms. That is not an outside Cinderella story, but a kind of reverse Cinderella story where she transforms this place into a good place. And that was just so beautiful to me. And, you know, I wasn't at all daunted by the title Ugly Betty was never to me, I never took seriously. I, I was like, this is irony. This is a joke on the people who call Betty ugly. And like, this is about our perceptions and our projections, not about who this girl is. She's ugly in this ridiculous world of standards that call her ugly. And so there was never a single part of me that felt like, you know, diminished by it. I thought she was, she's the star of the show. She's the heart. She's, she's the most beautiful person on the screen. And so... To me, I, I just loved her from the beginning and I loved every single moment that I got to be Betty Suarez.
0: And, and just for, so this American ABC version that you were doing the pilot for, then series, she's this Latina girl from Brooklyn and then goes to work in this Manhattan fashion. Magazine World, and she's from
2: Queens. Sorry, Queens, I part of me, part. You. Sorry, Heights, I,
0: I saw it the first time yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. been a few okay. years, uh, but uh, no. So when you got the part with a network show, mm-hmm. you usually it's signing up like up to seven years, right? Did you? Yeah. What was the? Just what's your emotions? How would you find out you got it? And and what's 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 that moment like?
2: You know. Oh, I was in between shows at Dog Sees God and I was like getting a slice of pizza with my then boyfriend, now husband. Um, I know. <laughs> We've met, I was 21 and he was 24. So your person could be here. <laughs> uh, you don't know. Um, but yeah, we were just newly like together a year and and um, living in New York together and having a fun New York life. And then... I was on the show and we were getting a slice of pizza with some friends and then I got the call and I you know I there was no I think one thing that I feel so blessed about is that I I have always trusted my gut about what is right for me and I've had the courage even in really difficult moments And even when I really needed the money, like when I couldn't put gas in my car, when I couldn't afford my books that semester, like when I really needed the money, I had the courage to say no to the things that I knew weren't for me. And the no's are more important than the yeses because the no's make room for the yes. And if you don't have the courage to say no to what's not right for you, you may never get the right yes, right? And so I feel like, like real women have curves. It was like, yes, full body. Yes. With sister of the traveling pants. It was, I wanted that job so bad. This was my job. Like, you know, and ugly Betty was the same. There was just no doubt in my mind that I knew I could, I could bring her to life and, and that I, that I knew this character. And so, I think I just like people are always like, were you surprised at how big it was? And I'm like, no, (laughs) because I loved it so much. And I knew that I needed that show growing up and that we were making a show that so many people were going to see themselves in for the first time. And so I have like, you know, kind of like a, a disorder where, like, I just think that if I love it, everyone's going (laughs) to love it, Um, which has served me in a lot of instances. Yeah, I was
0: going to say, and in this case, it was pretty much, like, out of the gate. And for that first season, you win a Golden Globe, you win an Emmy, you were just 23. And you, as we said earlier, historic Emmy, and you've spoken since then, it's now been a few years, about... I guess the mixed feelings about that time looking back where it's a huge moment on paper, but you've said that, I think there was, I think you talked about like imposter syndrome and not being able to fully enjoy being in that moment. And um, I mean, at the same time you're doing, that was early in the run of, four seasons, 85 episodes, network TV is not messing around. You guys work really hard, but just, you know, that was real. Women have curves was, was big sister out of the traveling pants was big, but this was like next level. So how did you acclimate to suddenly, you know, having a very different life?
2: Yeah, the work was, um, it was a lot. I'd never been on a TV show before. And it was that first season. I think we we were sometimes we worked 20 hour days. And so the work was intense. Um, and you know, this kind of seemingly overnight Cinderella story is happening from the outside where you're on magazine covers and doing Oprah and late night and everyone's like, wow, your dream's coming true. And, and that's what it looks like from the outside. Um, and then on the inside, on a, on a very personal level, I had a lot of, um, hard stuff going on in my family and, and just on a lot of personal levels. And so, you know it, there there's always you know there's always kind of a yin to the yang you know my dreams were coming true on one hand, and they truly were, because I, like I said, I loved being on that show. I loved my cast. I loved being Betty. I couldn't believe that people loved this show the way they did and that we were getting to celebrate it and be celebrated. And it was in a lot of ways, an incredible Cinderella story. And I think what you're referring to is when I shared that the night I won my Emmy, the overwhelming feeling I had standing on that stage, accepting my Emmy was that um, I don't belong here. I don't deserve this. Nobody here thinks I deserve this. Um, I didn't do enough. And that was, and like, I just have to like quickly take this and get off the stage. And and that's tragic, you know, for me, when I think back to 23-year-old America that she had this historic moment and that what she felt on the inside was that she didn't deserve it. And, you know, that was... Um, many, like 17, 18 years ago. And, and I've come to understand that feeling, you know, I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of work, a lot of, which if you're going to be in this business, if you're going to be an artist, I suggest you start doing now. (laughs) And um, no, seriously, your mental health is, you know, is, is, is crucial if you want to, you know, be in, in, in something that, that there's so much energy projected, projected to you. And there's so much energy you have to put out, like your health, your physical health, your mental health, your well-being is paramount and everything will challenge that the amount of hours that you're asked to work, the amount of output, the amount of, you know, it's a lot. And so I was struggling on a personal level. Um, and, and what I've come to realize about that feeling, you know, I, that I don't belong here, what some of us, you know, think of and call imposter syndrome, which I get asked about all the time. Do you experience imposter syndrome? I have, I have just recently begun to think about imposter syndrome differently because it's still a feeling that I get and so when I think about what are what are we saying when we say, uh, you know, oh, I I have imposter syndrome or I'm feeling imposter syndrome. Well, to me, what it means is like, I'm in a place and I feel like I don't deserve to be here or I don't belong here or I'm not good enough. Everyone else is good enough and earned their way in and I somehow snuck in the back door and someone's going to like figure it out and kick me out. And I can't do the thing I thought I could do. And And I've started thinking about the 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 naming of it that that we call it imposter syndrome which is sort of this like additional um you know disease we put on top of ourselves it's almost like you're shaming the victim right you're in a room that you've been historically excluded from you're in that room and now and now in addition you don't know how to be in the room and you're not you're not you know feeling strong enough to be in the room and and So instead of thinking about it as this thing that I'm failing at yet again, which is knowing how to be in the room, I've just started thinking about it as in, of course I don't feel like I belong in this room because for my whole life, I've never seen anyone like me in this room. How else am I supposed to feel? Feeling like I don't belong in this room is the most appropriate reaction that somebody could have because we don't see ourselves in these rooms and because people like us have never actually been in these rooms. And so, you know, I, I I do think that it's a feeling that all people, all kinds of people can feel for whatever reason, but it's, it's I think we have to start thinking about it differently and, and mostly so that we don't rob ourselves of our opportunities and rob ourselves of our joy. Because I I think about what I didn't, get to experience that night, which was the fruits of my labor, right? The hard work that I had done to to be there and then to give that to myself and say, you did this great, you know, and then we move on, but, um, that was, a, that was a hard time. And I think that we have to be very honest, you know, because we're sitting here and to have someone like you research my life and career and kind of say it in front of everybody here, it just sounds like one big, amazing fairy tale of like, and then you did this and then you did that. And, and it's like, there was so much in between every single one of those jobs of like doubt, of not having money, of feeling like I was never gonna work again, that nobody wanted me, that I was only wanted for the same stereotypical roles. Like that stuff, is as much, if not more, a part of the journey than the moments of success that people see. And I think it's important that a group of young artists, you know, preparing to set out on their own careers are very wide-eyed and realistic about the fact that, like, there is no such thing as a fairy tale, right? There is a lot of hard work and moments where it looks really good from the outside and it's always more than what it looks like.
0: Totally. It's important advice. Absolutely. Just a couple other projects I have to bring up before we finally arrive at 2023. Um, I want to mention a trilogy that you were a part of vocally, and that is How to Train Your Dragon.
2: It's like you guys were born in, like, 2006 right. or something. Is that when you were born? I don't even want to know.
0: 2005.
2: 2000. Oh, my God.
0: So these guys grew up with grew Astrid. Up with
2: Astrid. Yes. yes who we did 3 movies but then I like 6 seasons of the animated oh, right. show. <laughs> so I voiced Astrid for 12 years. Well, I she's my longest running character I've right. spent with. And they didn't even ask me to audition for the live action version. Can you believe that? <laughs> Outrageous. I mean, that was a bad joke. Of course, they weren't <laughs> gonna act. She's 18 and she's a blonde, blue eyed Viking. But actually, they didn't cast her blonde and blue eyed. They uh, they cast a British African American actress to play her.
0: Okay. <laughs> Voice acting, fun, different. You hard. took to it right away? Yeah.
2: So hard. Yeah. Really hard. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. And Jay Baruchel, who played Hiccup, like, was he had had so much experience doing voice acting and and he was so good at it and so natural and and I would like do a take and then I could tell that they wanted me to like like you know you know be more sad and I'm like but I was so sad and they'd like play it back to me and I'd be like but you can't hear my sadness (laughs) like I didn't know how to I, it was brand new to me that the only tool that you would have as an actor is your voice and not your face and your gestures and everything else. And so it there was a learning curve for sure. But Dean Deblois, who, who wrote and directed the whole trilogy, who is actually writing and directing the whole live action, um, which, like, thank goodness, he's one of my favorite storytellers ever. Um, he was so much fun to work with. Like, as a director he could drop me into my imagination. He could drop me into, he, he could make me see it. I could see and feel, you know, uh, what, what it was going to be. And then, you know, we would go from there. So I learned to love it over the years, but in the beginning, it was really hard.
0: Yeah. Now, in the midst of that run was also your next network show, Superstore, <laughs> with... For any listener, it sounds like everybody in the room knows about it, but listeners, uh, Amy, most competent employee in a store of not all incompetent people. Uh, There's a will-they-won't-they thing with uh, Ben Feldman's character, Jonah. Anyway, this was 2015 through 2021. 100 episodes you did on that show, which is a lot. And again, created, in this case, Justin Spitzer, right? Had been a writer and producer on The Office. And you have said that the real significance here was this was the first part that you were offered that was not specifically written to be a Latina.
2: Yeah, this was the first TV job that they'd offered me. Yeah, that was just written like Amy, 33, but and it wasn't like Amy, Latina, you know, spicy, uh, you know, it was just Amy and and they yeah. And that, you know, that, that isn't why I did it, but no. that is of note that that was the first time in my career. And I was, you know, 30 years old at that point.
0: And you were also eventually there a producer on this as well. And I think that this connects back to what you had been talking about earlier with, you know, interests beyond acting where this show is dealing with social issues. There's a episode where maternity leave, she's back the next day. There's uh, immigration, there's all kinds of things. and, at the same time that that show was on the air, the world was getting a little weird. America, at least, was getting pretty weird. And, in fact, I will just note, ahead of the 2016 presidential election, you were a speaker at the Democratic National Convention where Hillary Clinton was nominated. Just a few weeks after the election, you were the opening speaker at the Women's March in D.C., which was the largest single-day <laughs> protest in American history. Um, not long after that was the me too there had been me too discussion obviously before that but the, the uh, movement, the movement yeah. really exploded after the Harvey Weinstein stuff. you spoke out about that and helped to found the times up organization, which for a number of years was was you know trying to have a a, a coordinated response in Hollywood to this. So just maybe as a collective, if you want to talk about those, Years where it's not like you weren't busy at work as well, but you found time and made time to be active socially as well.
2: Yeah. You know, I think this was like kind of the period where, what had been so confusing to me about these dual paths of, you know, my, my activism and my engagement in politics, and then my career as an actress kind of always feeling like two separate things and pulling me in two different directions and feeling like two different careers. That's when those rivers started to kind of converge. And I started to realize that there was, there was intersection here. And sometimes that looked like, you know, getting to tell stories that that highlighted issues that I really cared about. And it is what I loved about Superstore. Justin is a brilliant writer. He's incredibly funny. And he could write about, you know, health, you know, our broken healthcare system or maternity leave or, you know, guns. And, you know, uh, in a way that, that was ridiculous and funny and silly and also had truth in it. And so to me, that was the reason to do that, to say like, this is going to be fun. It's going to be funny. People are going to watch it and they're, and they're going to like, they're going to get this, you know, insight and this look into, you know, American life and just kind of the how ludicrous so much of what we just sort of accept and take for granted is. And so that's sometimes what it looked like. And and I was a producer on that show from the beginning, and I became an executive producer and I actually started directing on that show. Um, and so sometimes those paths converging look like that. And then other times, it looked like you know being getting to participate in documentaries that highlighted, you know, uh, access to abortion or the environmental um, crisis. Years of Living Dangerously, this beautiful series on Showtime, Emmy-winning sh- series that I got to be a, a host on. Um, so I was starting to see how my interests and my passions. It could exist in the same place. And what that required was for me to sort of step out of just the role of actress and step into my my work as a producer and even as a director and a filmmaker and start kind of using the access that I had created um, through my career as an actress to start uh, advocating for and pushing through stories that I really cared about. And then after the election in 2016, I kind of unwittingly with my husband began to gather frontline activists, social justice leaders and organizers who I had met in my work as an activist with my colleagues and people I knew in 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 the entertainment industry and I began with this we created this nonprofit organization called Harness which is essentially a community of activists and artists being in deep relationship and collaboration to tell stories that can can move social justice forward and so you know that I I I could have never known at 17 or 18 or 5 when I said I wanted to be a human rights lawyer and an artist that like that that those things would lead me to a place where I could then take my experiences and and actually build an entire community around the things that mattered to me, and and that is you know one of the things that I'm so incredibly proud of uh, this organization that I co-founded with my husband called Harness.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> All right, 2023, just a interesting year, I would say. We're looking back first pre-Barbie, even Dumb Money, an excellent movie. Craig Gillespie, who had done I, Tanya* and Lars and the Real Girl, and all kinds of stuff.
2: That actually I shot after Barbie.
0: Shot after, okay. Well, came out.
2: I I shot right after Barbie.
0: Okay, and that, right, makes sense. And it came out at the Film Fest in the fall of 2023. During the strike, yeah. During the strike. Very interesting movie people should check out, but did not get nearly the uh, spotlight that your other movie— did, which of course is Barbie. And so I want to talk about- Our little
2: independent film. Your little
0: indie, you know, Greta, back to the indies. Um, So prior to 2023, I think it had been seven years since you'd been in a film not vocally. Uh, It had been special correspondence, I think, was the previous. Was that, is that just because you'd been so busy with- I mean, your two two TV series and all of that, or had there been other? What was that about?
2: Um, I had you know, I had done independent I, I did like Cesar Chavez, which Diego Luna um direct, directed, right. and and yeah, I had done a number Maybe of it was about a studio, I, done this, a number that, I think, of yeah, independent yeah. films, um between Ugly Betty and Superstore, which was like a five-year break. I did some independent films, but listen, the truth was like Emmy, no Emmy. Like people were still not writing movies and studio films for women like me. You know, it just, you know, I would still want to be considered for roles. And I was told, you know, they're not, they're not casting um, this role as a diversity role which just meant they're not looking at actors who aren't white, you know? I had gotten close on some roles where then they decided to cast a Latino or a or a person of color in another role in the movie. And then they were like, oh, we already cast another role, kind of POC, so we're not going to cast this one POC. Um, you know, there were a lot of... There was a lot of frustration, I think, of... Uh, for me of of um that 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 there that no matter how you know much i had proven um that it didn't always translate to more opportunities and i think you know there's a I, we we expect that like if you succeed or you prove yourself then that's going to open the next door and that's going to open the next door and sometimes it felt like you know, climbing a mountain and then just get taking an elevator straight back to the bottom and then having to climb another mountain and another mountain. And look, that that's my experience in this industry. That's a lot of people's experience in this industry for different reasons. For me, it was specific to feeling like people couldn't see me outside of roles that had been specifically deemed or written Latina or diverse or POC. And, um, and so I think I stopped really expecting much in that arena and 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 it wasn't a bad thing because what it forced me to do was stop kind of waiting for permission to do my work and to and to say what I wanted to say and make what I wanted to make and I started turning to my work as a producer and working with writers I I executive produced a show called Tentified on Netflix yes And, and realizing that like, okay, that door isn't opening, but I do have access and I can use that access that I have to tell stories that matter to me. And that, you know, that may mean that no, no big fancy director is ever knocking on that door and my phone's not ringing off the hook because they want me to come and do some great, you know, nuanced acting in a studio film that might get me an academy award nomination. So I'll just go over here and do my work. And 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 that was great. Mm-hmm. It was great. I loved everything that I've done as a producer. I love everything that I've done as a director. Like what a joy to to be compelled to invest in your own work and in your own ideas and in your own story. And yes, it feels great to be validated. Yes, it feels great to be chosen. Yes, you want Scorsese knocking down your door, but that's sitting around waiting for that to happen you could be waiting a really long time. Meanwhile, whiling away the access that you do have and the opportunities you do have to be doing your work. And so I turned to that stuff and I, and I was preparing my first feature film. I'm not your perfect Mexican daughter. Uh And which, which is still in development and still in the works. And we're hoping to make um, later this year. Um, And then that's when, And then that's when Greta called.
0: And the thing there, correct me if I'm wrong, but like it just shows you how things can have a ricochet effect years, years later. She's talked about her first apartment, I guess, after college, having a regular like meet up with friends, watching Ugly Betty. (laughs) And that was what put you on her radar. And she was a fan and followed you. And then all these years later, not an audition, not a whatever. You get a call saying what?
2: Uh, I wrote a Barbie movie, hear me out. <laughs> <laughs> There's this role that Noah and I wrote with your voice in our head. And I'd love for you to read the script. And if you love it, to come do it. And I mean, I'd never gotten a call like that ever, you know, from an Academy Award nominated director um, and someone that I just admired so much. I loved her work as a writer and as a director. Um, I mean, I had to see what this whole Barbie thing was about, but, but I was really moved. And then I read the script and from page one, I was laughing and confused and it was so weird and so bonkers and so heartfelt and so moving. And then to meet Gloria and like I kind of had the same moment in real life that Gloria and Barbie have in the movie where they go... <gasps> you came for me, you know, where it's like, Oh my God, this movie is for us. You know, like a grown adult mother woman perspective is at the center of the, of driving the, the story and the heart of the film. And, and, and she's asking me to play this real woman in this movie about, you know, uh, seemingly about, you know, plastic pretend perfection. And, And it was just, I mean, by the time I put it down, like I felt like I'd been on, you know, a mushroom trip. I don't know what it's like to be on a mushroom trip. (laughs) Don't get it twisted. Um, But I was just like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm, you know, and, and honestly, like just as a person who had no investment in Barbie whatsoever, I didn't play with Barbies. We couldn't afford Barbie. Like Barbie was not really in my awareness really. I I went in with no investment and I came out like, I can't believe that this is the movie we we're going to get. Like that we, like people who love movies are going to get this movie. And I, I was just giddy and thrilled for all of us, you know, that, that I knew this was coming.
0: Quick aside, did something else also happen the day you got the Barbie script?
2: Yeah, this was really weird. Okay, so remember the part where I was like a short, brown, you know, overweight daughter of immigrants who had no money, and people were like, you're not a movie star. And the same day that I got offered Barbie was the day I closed a a deal with CoverGirl. I became a CoverGirl. And I was like, and I was like, I literally went into the shower, like ran a hot shower and just cried. Do you ever do that? It feels really good. You should do that. Um, and I just sat there and I thought, you know, I had been told my whole childhood that everything I was, was going to make my dream impossible. And, and the truth is, is that my dreams became possible because of everything that I was. And that I reached those, thank you, that I, that I was being asked to come in and be a part of things like Barbie and CoverGirl, which I never saw myself in. I was never represented in those worlds and in those narratives. And, and I was asking to come and be there, not because I had changed into something that I wasn't, but because the culture had changed in a way that someone like me representing people like me could now step into that space and, and be represented. And that was such a, that was such like a momentous moment for me.
0: So (laughs) Greta is obviously somebody who, I mean, I think everybody gets, and especially um this generation of filmmakers. If you ask people, and we've done this in other classes I've taught, you know, who's the filmmaker or the film that's most, you know, motivated you or inspired you to be here. I mean, it's a- amazing in just a relatively short number of years how she is kind of at the top of the list for um a lot of people. And I found it interesting just hearing her talk and then hearing you talk, just you were in Santa Barbara getting an award a few days ago where there were just the things that have been mentioned the conversations that you know you have on a set with greta and in this case the set of barbie that you know you should watch these movies before you come to work you should you know let's talk about um gloria and barbie's relationship is sort of a love story if you break it down going into barbie land are you becoming a barbie yourselves you you and your your character and her daughter Or are you, you know, what's, how do you navigate? What, how should you play that? And then of course, and feel free to talk about any of those, but especially this monologue that everybody's been talking about, which I understand you guys really kind of hashed out together. There was, she and Noah had written it, but there, it was, they were not precious about it and they wanted input. And so before you share anything about that, that you'd like to share, I would like to, if it's okay, cue up the
2: (laughs) It is literally impossible to be a woman. You are so beautiful and so smart and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like, we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. Like, you have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for other people you have to answer for men's bad behavior which is insane but if you point that out you're accused of complaining you're supposed to stay pretty for men but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be a part of the sisterhood but always stand out and always be grateful but never forget that the system is rigged so find a way to acknowledge that but also always be grateful you have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard, it's too contradictory and nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out in fact that not only are you doing everything wrong but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll, just representing a woman, then I don't even know.
0: When you read that, and obviously it evolved a little bit when you guys worked together, but, like, what was your reaction to that?
2: Oh, That's a lot of words. <laughs> um, yeah. she, had, she had kind of warned me. She was, like, in her first email to me, she was like, I wrote this monologue, I'm calling it Gloria's Aria. She said Meryl Streep read it. She said she'd like to do a monologue like this. <laughs> and I was like, then give it to Meryl Streep. <laughs> like if you have that option do that um so it felt like you know it, it you know it, it's that end when when she turns to Barbie and says and if all of that is also true for a doll just representing a woman then i don't even know it's the moment where you understand what the movie is about right and where finally the connection of like, why does this grown human, flawed, real woman feel this connection? What is the intersection between womanhood, real and imagined? And it's this impossible assignment, right? And, and to kind of sneak that in this big, weird disco ball, dream ballet crazy Barbie land movie and to sneak that in there was just like, whoa, like that's not where I thought we were going, you know? And, but that's the genius of it. It's unexpected. It's, it's weird and it catches you off guard hopefully. And, and in a place where you're in a open to, to hearing it or feeling it, you know, and.
0: Just for the record, how, Long does it take to learn something like that? How many takes slash days does it take to get it? Those two, those two or three we
2: things. shot this scene for two days, and but because it was inside a larger scene, so they come back to weird. It was like this whole weird Barbie sequence, and we had to shoot it all in 10 days, and there's like 12 speaking actors in the whole scene, and you have to shoot coverage, and so you, they're not gonna like shoot half the scene and then and then come back and reshoot the second half of the scene I had to we had to do the whole scene and I had to do my whole speech top to bottom every single time for two days and so I don't know for sure but it like felt like 30 or 50 times doing it but I actually relished it time is not something you usually get on film sets you know you get time rehearsing plays And you get time in rehearsal if you're lucky enough to get rehearsal in a film. But on set, time is the most precious thing you have. And and so to be given uh, the luxury of letting something find its way into your body and to land in your body and to try it off camera and to try it for other people and to see what you discover you know, every other scene in this movie for me with Greta, it, there was a lot of specificity to what she wanted. She's very musical. She started out as a dancer, was like her entree into the arts. And she would sort of like have us run lines and she'd close her eyes because she heard everything in a very specific way. And she, Ryan Gosling always said, like she was tuning us. And I agree with that. She was kind of always tuning us. But with this scene, when I, the day of, I went to her and was like, what is this supposed to sound like? Like, is this supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to go fast? Is it supposed to go slow? Like, what's the cadence of this? And it was the only time in my experience with her on set that she said, I don't know. And she was like, I want you to find it. And that was scary, but also amazing that she had that much faith in me to to find it. And I had a lot of faith in her that she would you know, that she would know if it was the right thing or not, if we were on the right track. And, um, and it felt, you know, it, it felt like a gift as an actor to, to get that much dialogue. And I, and this is weird, but I don't really, when I have that much dialogue that I know I'm going to have to say a million times on set, I don't really spend that much time learning the lines like I'm lucky because I have a pretty good memory. I have a, I've used to have an amazing memory, but you know, old. So <laughs> yeah, you know, the memory changes. And but I have a pretty good memory, so I know that like if I say it a couple times on set, I'm gonna know the words. The reason I don't love rehearsing lots of dialogue over and over and over and over again is because then I feel like I get stuck saying it a certain way. And to me, you know, every take we did of this monologue was very different like there were takes that ended in hysterical laughter and takes that ended in hysterical tears and it went fast and it went slow and I remember there was like one take where I like literally ripped the buttons off my jeans and like growled like a dragon like it was like (laughs) or like screamed like a dragon it like it got weird (laughs) it got weird and we went to all the places and and you know I I It was just such a luxury. It felt indulgent as an an actor to really be given the space and the time to really just start each take wherever I was and to let whatever thread was getting pulled in that particular take to just guide me and, and to not feel like, oh, I got to get to the laughter or I got to get to the tears or I got to get to the anger. Um, and, and so as an actor, it just felt like swimming and it felt like just, yeah, it, it, it felt great. And when I was done two, two days of doing that, I was just like dead. like so <laughs>
0: tired. Last question for me and then we'll close if it's okay with a few questions from students. But uh, I'm going to just state a few things again and then ask you to tell me what you made of it one of the most critically acclaimed movies of the year, the biggest opening weekend at the box office of the year for 2023, highest overall gross for 2023, over a billion dollars, leading up to a bunch of, you know, women in film honor, the Critics' Choice Award nomination, but then obviously the biggie, Oscar nomination morning. So just have you quite processed this? How How do you explain it? How do you react to it? What's your... You know, this is we're catching you at a pretty interesting moment in time, I think.
2: Yeah, totally. <sighs> I mean, it feels it feels like living on different on many different timelines at the same time. It feels like okay, I'm here, it's 2024. This is what I have to do next. I put one foot in front of the other. I go to the award show, I make my kids lunch. Like, you know, this is what's happening. Oh yeah, I'm nominated for an Academy Award. That's amazing. Okay, <laughs> go back, wipe your kids butt, right? Like I'm on the like present timeline and it feels great in that present timeline. But then every now and then I'm like 10-year-old America and I'm seeing it through her eyes or I'm seeing it through 15-year-old America's eyes or 16-year-old America's eyes and it's overwhelming. It feels like It feels like summiting a mountain that I, you know, never even knew that I'd get to lay my eyes on, you know, and it was my childhood dream. And, and...
0: The Academy Award nomination.
2: Yeah, being in that room. Like, you know, I sat at home watching the Academy Awards and, you know, dreaming that, you know, maybe one day I could be in a room like that and, 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 you know, get to get to do that. So it's like the, the bigness of it from the perspective of like the whole journey and the childhood dream of it is really big and beautiful and overwhelming. And, and it's, it's wonderful. And, and, but it's it's hard to process. It's hard to really wrap my mind around. Um, And of course, at the end of the day, it's not this moment that, that is, you know, this moment is not the journey. The journey is the journey. And looking back and realizing that I'm only here because I did the thing that I set out to do and I played these characters and I told these stories that were aligned with me and what I wanted to say in the world. And, um, you know, they're just not inextricable. And, And to... And so you're right, you are catching me in this very weird moment in where it all feels like, you know, they all feel like montage moments in the movie of my life, you know? Right, right, and right. it's like, you know, this is the opening scene of the movie. And then you cut back to like five-year-old America <laughs> right. seething at the flying monkeys in The right, Wizard right, of Oz, right, right. right? And it's like, how do you get from there to here, you know? Um well, it's that... it's bizarre. I'm kind of watching it like a movie. I
0: was gonna say but I've I...
2: always watched my life like a movie <laughs> a little bit.
0: Well, and tonight we've really forced you to because we have gone step by step and thank you so much for that. And now I'm going to turn this over to students. If you could just please say your name and then your question. Hi, America. My name is Brandon. I'm super happy to have you. And just really quick, briefly,
1: on behalf of most, if not all first generation Hispanic or anything else students,
4: (laughs) we are so grateful to have you here.
1: You are such an inspiration to us. Um, Thank you for coming. What is something that would keep you hopeful towards your
3: goals in an industry that is so dominated by pre-existing connections and by such a specific group of people?
2: Um. Thank you, Brandon. You know what does keep me hopeful is that you guys. I talk a lot. I'm sorry. I think in paragraphs and I speak in paragraphs. So, I the way I want to answer that question is is that the first film, first feature film I ever did, "Real Women Have Curves." Lupe Ontiveros played my mother in that. She also played Yolanda, who killed Selena. But don't hold it against her. <laughs> She's just the actress. She has passed on since then. Um, but, but she was this fun, it was my first time being on like a real film set, you know, a movie set. And I was number one on the call sheet, which means you're like, you're the star of the movie and you have to, which also means you're usually the first one in and the last one out and you're in every single scene. And, and that's a hard thing to do your first time out at the rodeo being in a, in a big film. And, and Lupe played my mom and Lupe was this veteran who had spent decades Um, working but mostly playing housekeepers and nannies and maids and you know being hilarious and milking any scrap that she got any role that she got and and infusing it with as much hilarity and comedy and there was only like eh, two or three projects in her entire career that gave her the chance to shine to really see what was possible in her talent and she was deeply talented and you know I often think about all the role all the amazing performances we were robbed of because she couldn't she wasn't met with the opportunity to to give those performances but she showed me the way she showed up every day on set and she didn't let that system, the one you're talking about, where a few people, certain kinds of people hold the power of of what the rest of us get to say and the stories we get to tell. And she had so much joy and she had so much passion and she never let the harshness of the, the, the system of it steal that from her. And I've only grown to appreciate that the longer I've been in the industry because you can't be in this industry without being exposed to how difficult it can be sometimes and how we are living in very entrenched systems and biases and, and, you know, things that discriminate and that's hard to take, but we're artists and we can't let that harshness blow out the flame of we show up and we do our work and we do our work with all the love and the passion and that doing the work is laying the foundation and the path for the people coming behind you. I know and have been aware since the beginning of my career that I could not have the career I have if Lupe hadn't done the decades of work that she did playing maids and housekeepers. And, and so when it gets, when it gets hard, I, I, Oh, I always think about her and I say, this is, this is my work. And, and for all my peers, when it gets hard for them, this is our work. This is the work of our time. We are paving this part of the road so that the next generation can come up so that you guys can come up so that you'd have different opportunities and more opportunities. And that's going to be true for all of you. You're going to, you know, there's never going to be a time where it's like doors are wide open for everybody to do whatever they want. Like, we're all going to have to do the work of our time, knowing that it's not about us. And we may never get all the opportunities we think we deserve. We may never see the change that we so long to see in the industry, but you're doing your work. And so you have to show up to do the work and you have to, you don't have to, but I don't know how you keep showing up for the work if you don't find a way to protect your joy. So, I hope that's an answer to your question. Hi, I'm Smudge. Um,
3: I was wondering, the national conversation around Time's Up has fallen off a little bit in recent years, but do you think that the movement is continuing? And
2: if so, what would the next steps be, and how could aspiring filmmakers who are joining the industry help push the movement forward? Um. You know, I think Times Up was an organization that was that was specific to that came out of it, the the Hollywood industry, and Me Too was the larger movement that that impacted you know a- every industry and and women of of from all kinds of backgrounds. And I think when we think about the Me Too Me Too movement, we think about the moment where it burst out into the scene post. Um, what we learned about Harvey Weinstein. But the truth is, is that the Me Too movement existed for decades before anybody knew about it. Tarana Burke was a Black woman activist laying the foundation for that movement for decades before anybody knew what it was. And there was a moment where everybody knew what it was and people, you know, flocked to it and come to it. But the work has preceded it and the work will will continue to happen. And I think as filmmakers, if there's an issue or a topic that is close to you or you want to see spoken about, brought attention to, like, this is our tool, right? We're storytellers and you can use your skills and your tools to create moments that that will fan a movement, but a movement is not merely the moments in which everyone is aware of them. In movement, work is always happening. And so even if it's not the hashtag that's dominating your TikTok, is that what people are on now? (laughs) Do you use hashtags on TikTok? I don't even know. I'm so lame. Um, You know, even if it's not like the thing of the moment, that's if you're a filmmaker, if you're a storyteller, like that's your secret tool. That's how you, that's how you fan the flame. And, but you know, never, I would say that it's important as filmmakers and as just people coming to issues that we come to them humbly, that we don't think that because we're not seeing it, it's not happening. There's work that is deeply happening and that has happened before us and will continue when the cameras are gone and the fanfare is gone. There are people who are on the ground doing the work day in and day out. And so what I would say is if it's an issue you care about, turn your camera on those people, amplify the folks who are closest to the issue when no one's looking. And that, that would be my, that, that would be, I think, my approach to it.
3: My name is Wendy, and I wanted to ask about, like, making the jump from being an actress to TV episodic directing and how those experiences are going to help you with your feature film debut.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, you know, I... uh, um I had had a couple experiences directing. I told you about middle school I won first place at the festival. <laughs> yeah. I directed that scene. I did student directing through through you know school. And 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 then I had like dabbled. I did a short film and I did um some this amazing thing in New York called fun thing called 24 hour plays and Um, I had a, one of my agents who's now just a friend and a mentor asked me this brilliant question, which was what it, what was your, what was the most fun day of work in the last five years you've had? And, and my answer was, oh my gosh, that day that I directed the 24 hour plays. And that was information for me of, oh, that's something I loved doing. Like my favorite day of work in the last five years is the day I was directing. Like, how can I do more of that? And I was on the show Superstore and, and I, and my friend Eva Longoria, who I'm sure you know, um, was one of the, one of the people that I was watching make this transition. She had started directing episodic as well. And I would just watch in awe and be like, oh my gosh, that's so brave. And that takes so much courage. And, and I was afraid to take that leap and I was afraid to ask for it. But she said to me, you you have access. You are number one on a TV show. Now is the time to ask for it. And you're an executive producer. If you can't ask now, like you're not ever going to ask for it, right? Like this is your chance to get it. And so I was terrified. Um, and But the thing that pushed me over the edge was, you know, I was filming a day on Superstore and and these two like kind of really young guys, probably just out of film school, like, we're on the set shadowing one of the directors and like ready and excited to direct their next episode, which is like great, more power to them. But what I saw was like, America. What are you waiting for? Like, you have made over 100 hours of television. You have worked with countless directors. Like, what is going to make you feel ready to do it? And you know what you need to know. And the only way you learn is by doing. You got to do it. And so stepping into something that you could fail at is terrifying. And I had, but I remember thinking to myself, if I don't have the courage with all my access and experience to step into this, how do we? How can we possibly expect people with no access and experience to have the courage to step into roles they never see anyone like themselves in? So all of those things gave me the courage to finally ask for it. And then they said yes, and I started directing episodes, and I loved it. I had so much fun. It was so joyful for me. And dare I say, I was good at it. And I like, I, yeah. Yeah, I think we're allowed to say that. I think we're allowed to say, like, oh, I have... I know what I'm doing and I'm enjoying this. And, and so then I directed more episodes on Hentified and then, you know, this incredible story, I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which I hope some of you have read the book. It's unbelievable. Um, The script came my way and I just thought I can tell this. I know I'm, I'm this girl, I can tell this story. And so I think that's also part of it is finding the stories that, you know, you you know why you're the one telling the story. Like, why is it you? Why, what do you have to contribute to this? And I feel like once I know why, what my perspective is and what I have to offer it, it, it really focuses me and allows me to just kind of go in and, and do the work. That's great. Hi, my name is Anna. Thank you so much for coming here. So my question is, since you speak on so much social justice, do you find yourself not taking certain jobs based on the people or the production companies that want to hire you because you disagree with their beliefs or morals? And how do you deal with those situations? Um, that's a good question. I think the short answer is no, I think, I mean, I, I take, I take the, I take roles and I, and I, get involved in stories that I feel passionate about telling, that I feel passionate about those stories being in the world or that there's really something for me exciting and interesting to do as an artist. You know, I think it's very, very difficult when you get into really any billion-plus-dollar industry to start looking for, for bad guys and good guys and for saints and sinners. You know, I think that there's... Gonna be a lot of dead ends there you know and um so I, I I don't think that you can solve all of those problems you know with with a silver bullet or with taking away your yes or whatever it is um I, I make decisions about what I do based on on, on the creative team if it's people I want to be working with if um if it's a great story that I want to be a part of, and if there's a role in it that is exciting to me. Hi, America.
3: Thank you so much for being here. I actually had a similar question, but from a different perspective. Obviously, you mentioned that you work with, um, you're interested in human rights, along with your acting as you were growing up. And I'm a first-year producer, and that's also something that I'm very interested in. But sometimes I feel like, Oh my goodness! If I speak about this, like right now when I'm not like quote unquote established in my career, maybe people might look at me or like peers might look at me and be like, "Oh, she's being I don't know. This is weird, different. Like maybe let's not work with her because of X, Y, and Z." So as you were, I guess, moving up the ladder in your career, like how did you navigate that? Did you find yourself having to pick your battles because? like you mentioned earlier on the talk, like you're a, we're multifaceted human beings. And like, we're not just our careers. We are also like humans that care about things, but how can we be silent about certain things? Because we're like, Oh, I need to book my next job. Like how, how, what advice would you give for that?
2: Yeah. Um, it's a good question and a great thing for you to be thinking about. I mean, I don't know how to do it any other way. I, I live in a way that I can, I live in a way that I can live with myself, you know, and, and I have, um, I have spoken my mind. I have, uh, been an activist. I have spoken up on issues and, um, shown up at marches and rallies and done petitions and campaign for in political elections. And, you know, a lot of things that that uh, people might um, encourage you to not do as a public figure. Um, But I've never thought of myself as just an actor. And I kind of refuse to be reduced, as you say, to a career. And, you know, we don't ask plumbers to not have opinions about the world. Um, I don't the the last thing we should be asking artists to do is to not have opinions about the world. I mean, we need artists to compel us towards a world we want to live in. We have to have opinions about the world. Um, I mean, my advice to you as a human being would be, you don't want to build a career based on somebody you're not. You don't want to build relationships and collaborations and, and an image based on a pretend version of yourself. I think it's important that you find out who you are and you find out what you care about and you find a way to be true to that. And that doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that you have to be all of those things and speak your mind and make sure everybody knows everything you feel in every single room. I think you, you do have to be, um, collaborative. This is a collaborative industry. You're going to work with people you don't, like you're going to work with people who disagree with you whether it's the grip you know w- with the maga sticker on his cart or, or you know or you know the ch- chick with the you know abortion pins all over her her backpack like this you're not walking into some sort of like you know liberal panacea you're 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 it's the world and our industry is the world and so you have to learn to meet people where they are. And if you're looking for a world where there are not people who support things you don't love or you only want to work with people who um, either agree with you or, or, you know, where every conversation is going to be around, you know, what you don't agree on and your differences... (laughs) Uh, that's gonna be. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of conflict in that, you know. And so, but I think it, it. I think it is important for us to work with people who, who aren't exactly like us, you know. I, I in my career because I had no other choice, you know. I was often playing roles, written by and directed by and produced by, like people who were not like me and who had written characters that they had no genuine experience with. And I had to step into that role and play that character and advocate for that character or that story from a position of less power in the situation. But I couldn't just come in and be like, you're canceled because you wrote the wrong thing and because you don't understand this character and this experience. I had to come in and collaborate and advocate from a place of, we want the same thing. We want to tell the best story we can tell, right? Isn't that why we're here? We want to tell the most authentic story we can tell. Like, I can't wait to be a partner and a collaborator in in sharing with you how, how we make this so much better and where you look like a genius, right? Like, I'm not saying that's how it should be all the time, but that is my experience was I didn't have the option to come in and say, You know, if this isn't perfect, if I don't agree with all the people around me, if I'm not, if I'm not allowed to kind of speak my mind on every issue, then I don't want to be in this situation. I had to find a way to be in uncomfortable collaboration sometimes and still find a way to advocate for myself. But I think that that work is worth doing because If we're just working with the people who already agree with us, then chances are we're, you know, we're probably not creating much that that is new and interesting and and creating conversation in the world.
1: Yeah. I'm Nico. I'm actually from Colombia. So when I say that Betty La Fea has been significant in my life, basically since the moment I was born, my parents watched that. As they When they were newlyweds, they made me watch that show when I was growing up. And then we all watched Ugly Betty together. And I think just the thought of how significant and meaningful your work has been for so many people, it must feel just ultimately incredibly gratifying. And I think what I'm alluding to with is my question being, how does the cultural significance and the social impact that your work can, ha- can have, motivate the projects you choose to work on now, and how can we as young filmmakers aspire to leave a mark and make an impact through our work?
2: Yeah, well, thank you for all of that. That's beautiful tell your parents I say hi. <laughs> you know, I, I really think, I'm sorry if this seems so simplistic, but it is honestly, be you. Like, don't try to make something that you think people wanna see. Don't try to tell stories that you think are gonna sell. Like, follow your own weirdo impulses. Like, Greta said this, and I love it so much. Like, her takeaway from Barbie is that this was a win for the weirdos. There is nothing about Barbie that was, that was obvious. There was nothing about Barbie that was inevitable. Like this was a weird movie. Like nobody asked for a Barbie movie. Right. But she took this thing and she decided to follow her impulses. And and she talks about how she and Noah, when they were writing, they're just trying to make each other laugh. You know, they're just trying to write something that they want to see that they want to make. And, and, that's what we need. We need people to not go out and make another Barbie movie. We need people to take the inspiration of you can make things that are so unique to you and that seem weird and and unprecedented and there are no comps to it. That was the whole big thing about Barbie. There are no comps. And in the studio films, if there are no comps, then how do they know they're going to make money? So the answer is usually no. So it's a really big win when you can get through something that is new and unique and fresh. And your jobs as artists, as storytellers, is to bring in new energy into the world. That is your job. Your job is not to regurgitate and copy what you have seen your whole life. Nobody needs it. Nobody wants it. It's not going to impact the world. If If you want to be an artist who leaves an impact in the world, then learn, build the capacity to be the most and best, best, wholest, fullest version of who you are and trust that person, trust who you are and follow what that person loves. That's what we need from all of you.
0: I'm just going to wrap us up by saying, We want to really, really, really sincerely thank America for coming here, giving her time, and really, um, truly can't thank you enough. So, America Ferreira, thank you.
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming out.
0: Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Step into the world
4: of power